0: You can And and this is an extreme case. It's not something that would apply to any golfer in the real world. But I mean, endurance athletes die of having too much water. It's hyponatremia, it's called, where you dilute the salt content in your blood. So you're taking in water, but you're sweating out electrolytes and the water you're taking in is doing more harm than good because it's further diluting the mineral balance that you've got. So that is why drinking water past a point isn't hydrating you. What you need is electrolytes to get that balance correct in, in your bloodstream.
1: Today we are joined by Ben Waters. Ben caddied last year on the Corn Fairy Tour and is a nutritionist. Ben does a deep dive on nutrition and golf and lays out a lot of the pitfalls that golfers can fall into. Additionally, Ben tells us what it was like caddying on the Corn Fairy Tour and how he picked it up quickly with minimal caddying experience. We hope you enjoy the episode. Appreciate you taking the time to join us, Ben. You know, a lot of our episodes start the same way, which is how did you get into golf, and I think this is no different question for you here. We know that uh, you caddied on corn ferry for a bit. Uh, you do nutrition and fitness, and all that revolving around golf. So tell us just how you got into golf in general.
0: Yeah, well, so it started. I was, I think, I was fourteen. The first time I went went to my what was my local club at home. So I come from a golfing family. So my my dad was a member of that club. My granddad was a member of that club. My auntie and my cousin played in the ladies teams. My cousin started with me at the same time, so it was sort of inevitable. Do, do you know what I mean? It got to the only surprise is that it took till I was fourteen, I think. So, I mean, that's sort of where it started. I, it's never been a career option for me. I was very unremarkable as a junior. You know, played in the junior team, but 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 that was about it. Never 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 troubled any any county teams or state teams or anything like that and then so for me soccer was my main sport obviously football to me soccer to you guys worked nicely soccer in the winter golf in the summer that 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 was pretty much how it went until so when I went to college so my university to me college to you guys I uh, was playing a lot of cricket so you know our version of baseball <laughs> effectively so that th- that that was my main sport through through university golf took a bit of a backseat. Soccer, football took a bit of a backseat until when I finished college. I went back home, started working for only for the summer at West Cornwall Golf Club, which is where Harry played. So that's how we sort of reconnected. He was also at the first club I was at when I was younger, and then he was also there. And that's when I sort of got properly back into golf and was playing golf there then. And then it sort of flew from there, just started playing again until obviously. Harry got his tour card and I got a phone call to come to America.
1: Very cool. When it came to playing golf, when you picked it up a second time, how good did you get? And was it something that you were like, okay, like, you know, I'm just going to do this for fun. Or did you try to take it a little more seriously as you were going along? Because you're obviously serious about nutrition and serious about fitness and serious about catting, all of which, uh, indicate someone who's serious about what they do. Uh, in most aspects, yeah, I think anyone
0: who knows me would probably have chuckled when you asked that question because I can't do anything without taking it seriously. So, so, so yeah, that's not really an option. I mean, it was funny that I was I was immediately a better player coming back than when I left, probably because of the fitness stuff. I was, I mean, I'm I'm six five, two hundred pounds. Like once I matured into an adult, you just physically I was from playing cricket, from playing football. I was just a better athlete ultimately so i was a better golfer just than when i was a you know an, a 16 year old kid just trying to whack it as hard as you can
2: so why don't you talk about some about how you started caddying um and then that summer where you pulled away from your job and you caddied for a whole season
0: yeah so it, it was largely out of the blue in the sense of of when harry got his tour card he i i was working as a cpa so then a chartered accountant at home cpa to you guys got the call to come out so obviously he knew i knew about golf you know i played golf so um wanted me on the bag so i you know you can't really turn down that opportunity so it was very much i was i was learning it on the job i wasn't a caddy that he recruited it was a case of he obviously thought he could turn me into the caddy that he needed and a lot of it was we were discussing nutrition and things like that. So I was also coming into to the team in that sense, more than just the caddying element of it. So, I mean, that was how it started. I My, my first week, which was Louisiana. So th- that was also the first week after COVID. So it was a pretty stacked field. Obviously, everybody with a tour card anywhere was trying to play golf. So he barely got in on his number because of the amount of people. And I remember I was turned up and you had like Aaron Badley there on the putting green. It was literally my, my job was, you know, don't stand on anyone's line. Don't, don't, lo- don't lose a club, things like that. Like, and, and then I just learned from there. And as I'm sure we'll get into later on, we both started doing some of the more technical stuff like decade. I mean, this podcast might turn into an ode to Scott Fawcett because I'm not the first person on here to, uh, to mention decade. And I'm sure I won't be the last. So we started developing things like that and it sort of grew from there really as I settled into the job, I guess.
1: Very cool. When it came to getting out there, I know it's a lot to adjust to when you go to something as serious as that. I can remember catting in the US Sam and uh, everybody's particular about all sorts of different things, uh, where you stand, et cetera. And Cooper and I even had recent experience with that at um, the Jones cup. Uh, on one of the holes, there's a guy who's very particular about where people stood, even when he had a a three footer. So it's a lot to adjust to where everyone else is, but it's also a lot to adjust to the player that you're working with. And you and Harry uh, are friends. Tell us a little bit about what it was like learning on the job, but also uh, learning with a friend and also uh, what it was like helping to provide value because you brought value on the nutrition and we'll dive more into where you got your nutrition background in a bit? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, it is very
0: much going in at the deep end. Go your first caddying job, being on the Corn Ferry Tour, ultimately. So it was just a case of of learning as fast as you possibly can p- to try and add value as quickly as you can, obviously, and then trying where you can to to add value and learn new things together. So you try and get out of the stage where it's him teaching you what he wants from you where you both start obviously developing your as a team and you start learning new things. And that was where it was actually a friend who we were with in Greenville who suggested Decade and introduced it to both of us. I'm not not claiming that one, but then that was, I was the one that took that on and I then learned how to do it. And I was the one providing the Decade targets and you kind of, it all just sort of snowballs really, I think, because like that was also his first year on tour. So it was a learning experience for him as well in every sense.
2: So what were some of the changes that you saw in performance after implementing decade on the bag? And what were some of the changes that you saw in the player caddy relationship after implementing decade?
0: Um, so the, the first week we implemented decade, we won. That was the week in Wichita that was uh So that was kind of a, Oh yeah, this works, doesn't it? So, uh, it, it was an immediate impact. It wasn't a case of where you try something out for a while and you think, "Oh, should I? Shouldn't I? Are we carrying on?" It was immediately, "This is good," and it helped a lot. It helped the relationship a lot because, for me, with my sort of lack of experience at the time, and as we were discussing off air then, I'm a CPA when I'm not doing the nutrition stuff, so I'm a numbers guy. So this this was the holy grail for me. This this almost turned me into a caddy in a lot of senses like so yeah it was it it was and as both of us could potentially overthink things I think it's just it's objective do you know what I mean it's you that is your target you are playing to that target if something goes wrong you look elsewhere whereas it's so easy to when when you're doing everything by feel or you finger in the air type stuff then when you do get a bad outcome you, you question everything then. You think, well, should the line have been the lady in the red shirt, not that tree? And things like that. So it it made a massive difference, definitely. And and then, so since having me on the bag, he re-implemented decade this season and won again. So now he's on the PGA Tour. So
1: That's a nice testimonial decade. And that's one of the things that we like about it. And I'm analytical, uh, Cooper's analytical, and obviously being a CPA, uh, sounds like, you are as well it's a very nice relief i see a lot of other like uh, strategy mechanisms out there or like guidelines out there and they're not bad per se um they can be good and they can be right but i most of the time i see it uh see something i'm like uh decade solved it decade decade has solved it like is it it's going to give us like as close or very close to the right mathematical answer uh, as far as optimal target um, as as far as everything goes. and for most situations it can solve it. and then what it doesn't solve it also solves it also teaches you those principles where you come up to a tough shot. Uh, and normally you might be like, uh, if you're just following the rules only, it's kind of you know every level of mastery when you get to mastery, not only do you understand like the actual uh, math or other things that go behind, some talent or skill, but you also understand when to break them. And decade, I think also uh, teaches those foundations of course management. So, you know, when to break them, not based on position or anything like that, but based on the actual layout of a green or something to that effect. So when you're out there, how closely a, did you stick with decade, but also um, you won your first week and obviously winning requires luck, but when you won that first week, what did you notice as far as the difference in your targets? You know, Some players are too conservative initially, which is, but that's rarely the case. And more often, most players are too aggressive with their targets. How did you notice your targets changing that week and thereafter? I think it's just sort of consistency of targets and ease of coming
0: to said target. <laughs> Really, I think it it takes that emotion out of it, and like you were saying, whether you're being too aggressive, whether you're being too conservative, you you just don't have to think about it. And you know, it's there's so much pressure when you're out there, and you know, on the Cornbury tour, you're playing for your career, you're not playing for the glory and that sort of stuff. Like it is, it just takes that element out of it. And obviously, I'm doing the calculations; he doesn't have to think about it. I would just say the target is two long, three right. And then that gives us our number and you go from there. There's no all, but is it, the lie's not great. Should we be more conservative? Or like you said, we've got the angle, but like the angle doesn't matter that much. Like, yeah, I I think consistency and just, just less stress. There's so much stress that if anything you can do to remove some of it is, is beneficial.
2: I think it's interesting that you bring up, you know, how the angle doesn't matter that much. And I'd be interested to hear your if your opinion on angles changed after implementing Decade. Was there a point in time where you thought angles mattered more than they do after implementing Decade? Or did you never really pay attention to that?
0: I, I think it's just one of those one of those sayings that, that, that as the, the mathematical revolution has happened, they've been disproved, like you drive for show, putt for dough. And I think we all kind of believed it when you've been told it all the time by the, the coaches and everybody at your, your clubs and that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I think the numbers have disproven it. And you, you do start thinking if you've ma- managed to find the right side of the fairway to the left pin, you can be more aggressive at it. But no, you should probably still calm down and stick to the target that it gives you.
1: I believe that. it's one of, That's one of those things also that uh, it's nice that math has disproved a lot of the old sayings, so you don't get trapped in the follies of them when it comes to doing decade and preparing for a tournament, that sounds like that's part of the role that you played. What other things did you do to prepare for a tournament and what things do you recommend players do as they're preparing for tournaments?
0: Yeah. So I think obviously I don't want to go too much into decade and how it works. Cause that's, it's not my intellectual property as much as anything else, but so that would be a large part of the practice rounds would be doing the ratings that you need to do where you assess the greens, et cetera. I would do the Google Earth work. So for like T-Shot strategy, we we took that later on. It was more the target stuff that happened at the start. But so I would do that beforehand. And then, so I did the air density stuff. So we had an app basically. So, which was really good. So it's a, an app called Flag High. And basically it means week to week, you don't have to retest every time. And especially, you know, you guys in the US, it's like playing on different continents when you go from one side to the other. You know, you're in Utah where it's 5000 feet and boiling hot. And then three weeks before that, we were in Maine where you were, you had a jacket on and it was raining. Like it's So rather than having to totally retest everything, you have your standardised yardages and then that would calculate you'd put in your temperature your humidity altitude and that gives you that that gives you all your new yardages in your bag. so then it's just a case of you know verification so when you're on the range say he had a trackman putting most guys out there now have trackmans and you're just verifying it and just ticking the numbers off rather than having to go through almost full gap testing every week because you know the the ball goes 40 yards further in utah than it did in maine like it's not something and you see a lot of guys say I'm, it's it's ten percent this week, and it's like well, it's actually sixty degrees in the morning, and it's ninety five by the time it's peak afternoon. It's not just a flat ten percent, you, you know. So, so I would just have that. I would look at the weather forecast, put pick three temperatures. For example, what the average is going to be when it's cold in the morning, when it's hot in the afternoon. Obviously, generally it's that way around, and then. It gives us different the numbers that you need, so you'd be looking at a different set of numbers depending on when you play.
1: That's smart. As far as picking up on adding in those different uh, variables to make sure you're on top of it, where did you pick that up from? And how long? Like, is that something you guys started from the beginning, or is that something you guys picked up along the way? And if it's something you picked up along the way, what was the difference that you noticed in uh, results? because of that. No, he
0: that's something that he had used from uh, from before. So that was playing, he played an event and I can't remember where it was, but it, it it was really high altitude. And that was, I believe that's when he first got that and thought, oh, this is brilliant. And then it took, so then he showed me that and then I took that on as as what I did each week before we
1: started. Very cool. One thing I wanted to get at also, when it comes to preparation, we've talked about preparing on the course, but you also have obviously, uh, nutrition preparation that's necessary. And if you look at my bio on Twitter, it says if it's not strokes gain, then I don't care. And, uh, what's nice is, uh, you guys are strokes gain nutrition. Um, and so I'd love for you to kind of tell us a little bit more about how a CPA got into, uh, nutrition, how you got in nutrition. It sounds like you're an athletic guy, so it might've come from that background. And then, I love the strokes gained aspect, because a lot of times people take, uh, not necessarily that you're measuring strokes gained because of nutrition, but just that connotation, because a lot of times people take uh, the tangibles like your swing, et cetera, and miss out on the fact that uh, we're living organisms that need calories and need different uh, types of calories to produce different results. Uh, as far as muscle development, energy, et cetera. So tell us about how you got into nutrition and then how that kind of snowballed into into providing nutritional advice and helping lead people in their golf nutrition.
0: Yeah, so it started, it was a long journey, but probably quite a short story. Um, So I I was quite overweight in university, I think as a, a lot of people gain a few unwanted pounds in university and i just gained a few more than than most people gain it got to so i think in my final year i started thinking because it it sort of got to the point that it was hindering my sport so playing cricket and stuff at the time and so i just i started trying to do something about it but as a lot of people do when they start their journey it's more you know just stabbing in the dark you see oh that exercise looks cool i'll do that oh some guy on twitter said that this food helps you burn fat so i'll eat that and slowly started sort of vaguely picking up what to do. Some of the guys that I lived with played rugby and stuff, so they were quite into those sort of things. The next thing, there's loads of protein in the kitchen, so I'm taking protein shakes without really knowing why. <laughs> like we said earlier, if I do something, I do tend to take it a bit too seriously. So I started doing my own research and put sort of piecing things together, and then it really changed when a guy that I went to school with who trained as a PT, just back where like where I was from, where I'm living, and he put on Facebook that he was offering like a, a free session for this or a free session, something like that. So I sent him a message and he was like, yeah, come on over. And it was quite revolutionary seeing something done with structure and like organized and, you know, walking into the gym and he had his plan there and he said, right, we're doing this, this, then this. And then having a structured nutritionist, he was like, yeah, so I'd done like a food diary and it's like, yeah, so try and do a bit bit more of this, you know, et cetera. And being able to link all the dots and connect things sort of maybe then that kind of switched the gear into doing it in a structured sense. And then I started learning and I learned from him as well, some of the right places to look, because as you guys probably see, there's so much terrible information on the on the internet about nutrition probably more than a lot of things to be fair everybody because they eat food thinks they're qualified as a nutritionist S- started sort of building the co- the correct information looking sort of where learning where I should be looking and then it just got to the stage where I was helping some friends and family and was sort of doing that sort of stuff and then it's like well I sh- I've I've got to take this to the next level now this let's try and make some money out of it let's try and help people properly let's make it make it a business so I started, did a did so a couple of years studying the nutrition qualifications that I did. That, that happened to be then COVID hit. So obviously that helps you study when you're not. And in the UK, we had lockdowns bad. So obviously seven months not being allowed out of your bedroom basically helps you study. Yeah, got that through, started trying to make some content and things and then needed to niche down as you know sort of the marketing style thing if you try and talk to everybody you talk to nobody let, let, let's let try and specialize let's get good and it was it was golf and obviously the caddy and stuff as well you're like well obviously it's going to be golf so uh, that's when Strokes Gain Nutrition was born and that's pretty much the first name I came up with and I spent ages trying to think thinking names and think it was like no nah, that, that's still the best that is as long as Mark Brody doesn't sue me that's still the best
2: That's an awesome story and I don't think that he's, um, interested in, in suing you over that, but,
0: um, I haven't got (laughs) much for him to sue me for, so
2: (laughs) I don't, uh, I'm curious to, um, hear about some of the ways that you were able to help Harry on the bag with your knowledge about nutrition, um. Or were there things that you changed with his diet?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, he is a very smart guy. And without me, his nutrition was a lot better than than, than, a, than a lot of what I saw out there, to be honest. I think a lot of basic stuff can be changed. So we sort of worked on eating a bit more protein to, to help with the workouts. And, you know, as Cooper, as you know, from caddying out there briefly, is, is a grueling grind isn't it it really is like you've got you've got to be recovering you've got um, the weeks that they play in a row so it's just focusing on that it's focusing on and i think a lot of this is true of of most people in society is people should eat more when you when you when you've got that sort of lifestyle everything is diet culture and obviously there is an obesity issue both in the us and and home here but diet culture is such a way everybody sort of the word like pressured into eating less. Whereas actually, no, you guys are, you know, burning thousands and thousands of calories out there. You, you eat more. Do you know what I mean? Don't be scared of it. Like so I I think they were it's those fundamental things. There's smaller things you work on and I'm sure we'll get onto that later on. But there there's always a lot of low-hanging fruit and with with nutrition you want to try and think about it sort of as a pyramid. So I if anyone's seen my posts recently it's a pyramid of importance. So You've got calories at the bottom that underpin everything. Like you've got to fuel yourself. It doesn't matter what else you do. Like you can have the nicest car in the world and use the fanciest, expensive fuel. But if you haven't got enough of it, it don't matter. You're not going to get where you're going. And then you sort of you move your way up. And by the time you get to the top, and there's things like supplements that obviously guys at that level, an extra three percent can be the difference between winning and losing. For a lot of people, supplements don't make a big difference. Like it's it's knowing where you fall on those on what you're doing having that structure i think
1: i like the guidance that you've given as far as having those calories as a baseline especially when it comes to golfers i think people don't realize how many calories you burn i didn't realize it when i was younger until i started working with the trainer and uh i'm kind of like you as far as how i grew up i was now i'm six three and somewhere between 200 210 is where i would consider like my healthy weight uh and I could go heavier and put on more if I needed to without an issue but when I was uh going through puberty like fresh freshman year of high school I was five was I, I think I was five four, 150 maybe five six, 150 I think it's five four though uh and by my senior year I'm six one uh six three but I'm 170 and for my frame like again that's not a lot that's not a lot to have on my frame. So I decided once I stopped playing basketball, my junior, my senior, I was like, I got to put on more weight. Um, I got to be able to get a little muscle. And so I focused on that. And so I started having 4,500 to 5,000 calories a day, which is a lot of work for people to consume, but beyond just being a lot of work for, to consume, it provided a lot of the tools for the rest of my life. Cause I was using, you know, my fitness pal. Um, and I think you guys have your own nutrition tracker, which I'd love for you to talk about, but I was using that and I started, you know, calculating, I did it for maybe two years straight. As far as calculating where I was, I would put on weight then I'd drop weight, uh, just depending on what I needed to, how I needed to adapt. And now that I'm 27, I really can eyeball in general. I can eyeball about where I am for a day. I can eyeball about where I am for a week. And also because I have a heart rate monitor that I wear during exercise, I've worn it a few times while playing golf. I can eyeball how many calories something's going to burn. So, uh, I know that if I, I wear it every morning when I work out. So if I go in and I have a workout, um, where I burn 700 calories, I'm like, okay, um, my baseline in general is five to 600 for the amount of time I'm doing. I'm like, okay, I need to make sure I have a little bit extra today. If I go play basketball, I'll burn about a thousand calories an hour playing basketball. And so, uh, on those days, I'm I'm just trying to find food wherever I can find it, just in order to get enough in me. Uh, so that long-winded story, all to come back to. When it comes to working with players on tour, it sounds like calories are an issue, uh, making sure they get enough. It sounds like protein's an issue, which I think that's an issue for most people in general. As far as helping people manage that, what were the practical tips that? You're like, hey, here's what we can implement to help get you uh get you on the right side of this, make sure you're not suffering from major caloric deficits, making sure you're not suffering from major protein deficits.
0: Yeah. So I think y- you hit the nail on the head what you said there with, with eyeballing. Because and especially for guys when you're talking at, at tour level where you know you're eating from a buffet to two meals a day. You you're not gonna go in there and ask them how many calories are in things. So it's really valuable if you can. So there was times that I would just have him send, send me the picture of what he's eaten, and, and I would, I would eyeball it from the picture. But if you buy tracking, so like you said, my fitness pal, all, all you need, like I say, a great app free and just tracking for a period of time. So you can start eyeballing and, you know, we all know the kind of foods we eat, what we like, what we're going to get drawn to, you know, what's in most of the, tournaments are going to have you know vague especially breakfast where it's going to be eggs and oatmeal and things like that so if you do have that ability to eyeball it it just frees you up and it, and it reduces the effort as well you obviously you're not going to take a scales out in breakfast and start weighing things so I, I think if you can get into that position that's the goal is that so you you track when you can track obviously if you're at home if you're in the hotel if you're going out to eat i mean most places give you the calories now of where you're going to eat and i think to pull that thread a little bit i think it's really good advice to have have a repertoire of foods that you eat when you're when you're out so for example we always knew Ch- chipotle was our was our thing and you know what you order and the good thing about chipotle is that it's so you can do bits so if you're short on fats one day you can say oh yeah stick avocado on it if you're if you need more calories, you do double meat and and you put sour cream on it, cheese. Do you know what I mean? You, it, it's good that you can do that. But ha- having a, a number of restaurants, whether it's Outback Steakhouse, obviously good because it's pretty much meat and veg. Like knowing roughly what you're going to do. So, you, so you're not stuck there if it's late or if you're leaving the tournament and you're knackered. You don't then just go straight to something that you shouldn't have, especially if you're playing again the next day. You've got, that's a very small window where you've got a fuel as well as you can because you're going straight to bed and you might be waking up at five o'clock to go and tee off at seven o'clock so and having that sort of strategy that planning in advance just so you know right i need to go and eat go into google maps is there a, a, this, a this or this or this nearby right i know i'm going to eat job done so i think that that's probably a couple of like low hanging fruit a couple of things that's not only ma- means you eat the right food, it sort of stops you eating the wrong food as well in that sense. I
2: remember people would always joke um, on the Corn Fairy Tour that they should call this the Chipotle Tour because that's where everybody seems to go eat after, after a round. It's just so dependable and you kind of know what you're getting. But as far as on the course, eating enough calories, this is something that I've struggled with at the beginning of college. You know, you play 36-hole days. And, you know, as a freshman in college, I never ate enough calories on the course for those 36 whole days. And towards the end of my career, I started to wear a whoop strap and it, it's just basically like a heart rate monitor, like what Daniel was talking about. But, you know, it would tell me I burned four or 5,000 calories, um, walking 36 holes. And, you know, adding on top of that stress and maybe not the best sleep and you're going to have to eat a whole lot of food to be able to sustain that um, workload after kind of going through trying different things um, to be able to sustain that workload i kind of settled on an interesting food that really helped me um power through those long days and what I ended up doing was I ate like eight or nine uncrustable sandwiches for, if you might not know what those are, those are like the little packet pre-packaged pe- peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But, um, and you know, some people might not, might say those are like unhealthy or, um, you know, there's a lot of sugar in that and it's not good for you. But sometimes I, I found that just that massive load of carbs helped me sustain the, energy and focus that i needed to play and if i was just pounding like protein shakes or something like that my body wouldn't be able to turn that into fuel um fast enough to notice the difference so i would like to hear your thoughts on you know carbs versus protein um when you're just kind of in the heat of the battle
0: yeah no you're exactly right so the body isn't efficient at all at turning protein into fuel but what protein does do but this doesn't sound like an issue for you protein is very satiating so someone like me i'm one of those people that i could just eat forever like i am always hungry so for me getting some protein means i'm not stood on every tea box digging in the bag trying to find something else to eat so if you're someone that wants to eat more and more and more having some protein in it keeps you satiated but for you yeah the the uncrustables are exactly what you said It's, it's easy fuel your body can use that and especially yeah, they're not stereotypically healthy food. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise you to have your whole diet made up of it. Obviously, but on the golf course, that the priority is your golf. It's easy energy, and for you, if you're sort of didn't like eating per se, it's a it's calorie dense, especially with peanut butter in it. Obviously, peanut butter is about the most calorie dense thing you can eat. You're getting a lot of fuel for not a lot of chewing. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? So so in hindsight it wasn't the worst thing that you uh that you could have picked to yeah be honest. it was just interesting was probably slightly because, better things if um, people <laughs> missed to not mention
2: that de- definitely slightly better things i just um it was the thing that i could get down the fastest and i knew it was going to give me that energy and it was like i never like the only time i would eat those would be on on the golf course on a 36 whole day and it was just what i found to be the most consistent thing Sometimes that. Oh, is yeah. what matters.
0: Hundred percent, and it's better than nothing. You, like eating virtually anything is better than eating nothing B- because it is fuel. Ultimately, it, you, your body needs it. And like you said, especially on a thirty-six whole day at college, like so. You were mentioning the calories. So uh, what Daniel mentioned is about my tracker. So I I built a golf calorie calculator. Basically, I reverse engineered. There's a study that came out this year, me- a really good one, measuring calorie impact of golfers. So I sort of took, I'm sure you've seen calorie calculators online, the dime a dozen now where you go in and you put in your body weight and your height and all that, and it spits out a number. So basically what I did was I took that, the, the, the equations behind that, stripped out the golf sort of activity element of it, and then created a separate golf calculator to calculate your golf expenditure and combine the two effectively. So I can calculate the calorie, obviously it's an estimate because it's population based, but an estimate of what you burn in around a golf, what you need daily and what being able to sort of distinguish the two means you can fuel for a golf day and a non-golf day. Because like you said, you burn so many calories playing golf that, you know, when Daniel and me are sat in an office as a lawyer and a CPA, we're we're, we're not burning very much. Cooper's playing 36 holes at college. That's, that's so different. So it allows us to quantify that. And Treat the days differently. I mean, that's called calorie cycling, is the term that you've probably heard banded about online, which literally just means matching your calorie requirements to to your needs of the day. You know, we all say, oh, we need 2,500 calories a day. Something like, what well, you don't. One day, you need 2,300. On a day with 36 hours, you need 4,300. So, this just allows, currently, to my knowledge, the, the most accurate way of of just sort of managing that, basically.
2: It's definitely hard to get enough calories in on a day like that and it is the most important thing as far as protein consumption how many grams of protein would you recommend that somebody eat per pound of body weight and does this change um based on activity level Uh,
0: no so per pound is definitely the the sort of the the best way of doing it ideally you would do it per pound of lean body mass, but that's very hard to measure. So obviously everybody just does it per pound of body mass in general. It depends on your goals. So when you say depends on your activity, it kind of does, because if that is activity is lots of resistance training. So if you're doing low to speed training in the gym, you're lifting weights, you're trying to get strong and fast, you would want a higher amount of protein to recover from that. But activity in terms of calorie burn, wouldn't make a difference because you don't want to be using it for fuel do do you know what i mean you want to be taking in carbs and fats that you're using for fuel so in terms of a number obviously it will vary per person like 1.6 grams per kilogram so what's about 0.7 grams per pound is sort of a good middle ground so if you're hitting that you're probably not leaving a lot out there if i mean i aim for more than that because i would i like a lot of protein foods i've i have a lot of good protein habits that i call it it's very easy for me to eat a lot of protein if someone's never paid attention to it before th- that would be a complete diet overhaul to them and would probably almost do more disruption than it would good so there's a lot of factors that go into it but yeah if if you want a ballpark figure for someone you know, playing golf, which is physical enough, probably doing some sort of either speed training, weight training,
1: something like that, you wouldn't go wrong with 1.6 per kilogram. When it comes to getting enough protein, one of the tools that I've used for a long time, just because it's it's hard to get uh uh-huh. it's hard to get that much protein in a day. Uh I mean it's dual, but eating normal foods and um spreading that protein out and you can maybe correct this if I'm wrong. My understanding at least back at the time was there's only so much protein at a time that your body can process before some of it gets turned away. So if you ate a hundred grams of protein in the same meal, um, let's actually start with that. If you ate a hundred grams of protein in and one sitting, would all of that be efficiently, uh, processed or would some of that be just lopped off as waste?
0: It wouldn't be wasted in the sense of that's, you know, 300,000 years of evol- human evolution has, uh, has meant we're pretty good with what we, uh, with what we store. Um, there is a limit to the benefit you can get in the anabolic signaling that they call it in one. So you might've heard of muscle protein synthesis, which is what you're trying to trigger obviously by doing your resistance training and by eating your protein, which triggers your muscle to grow. So over about 40 grams so if there's an amino acid called leucine, which is in protein, which is what triggers it. But the equivalent of about 40 grams of protein will maximally trigger muscle proteins. So even if you ate 100 mm. grams, you wouldn't get a bigger signal, but your body would still use it. Some of it would probably be converted to energy because obviously that's also a lot of calories. That's more than half of most people's protein requirement. So there would, there's a limit to how much your body would then you're not going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in a week because you ate 400 grams of protein a day. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, so it's not wasted in the sense of, you know, your body disposes of it for, for want of a less vulgar term. Yeah. But it won't, there's a limit to the signal benefit that you will get from it.
1: Okay, that makes sense. So as far as when it comes to that signal benefit, um, I guess it depends on each person in their state, but all else being equal, is maximizing the signal benefit something we want to do? So, as opposed to having 100 calories or 100 grams of protein in a meal, if we space that out 40, 40, and 20 over different periods of time, would that provide a benefit to us? Again, all else being equal compared to that 101 sitting? Yes,
0: exactly that. So, you want to distribute your protein as widely as possible with every sort of three to five hours so the signal will raise so it it looks obviously this isn't great podcasting so i'm doing a diagram on my hands but so so, so it's like a bell curve it'll go up and then it will just taper off so that takes three to five hours so you want to space your protein between 20 and 40 grams ideally 20 grams is sort of where you get the majority of of the signal and Mm -hmm. then 40 grams is where you don't get any more over it so for a lot of normal people that might only be eating 120 to 150 grams a day, if you could split that into 30 gram doses uh, and, you know, it's not rocket science to have, if you can get it in your breakfast, your lunch and your dinner and a snack somewhere, that's your four thirties, that's 120 and you've probably spaced it out at 7am midday, 3pm snack, 8pm dinner. Do you know what I mean? Like, so so you can get the vast majority of the benefits okay. in a, in a fairly regular eating pattern, but that's where it comes down to. A lot of people sort of don't eat a lot of protein in breakfast. You know, it's very common to so you. Mm-hmm. You have a bowl of lucky charms rather than something with protein in it. So you can get a, the majority of the benefit from fairly regular.
1: Um, okay. And you want to spread eating. that out over three to five hours, you said. So every three to five hours.
0: Yeah. That that's where the signal then is, is virtually back to baseline. So then if you take in another protein dose, you spike it back up. So basically you're maximizing the amount of time in a day that your muscles have are turned on. The the builders are building effectively. Mm -hmm. You're maximizing the time that that happens.
1: Okay. So then that, that leads me, I'm so glad I asked that, uh, because it leads me kind of into my next question, which is about how to get those obviously, um, where you are, uh, the, can can, uh, change a lot of things where you are in life can change a lot of things too. And one of the ways I've tried to make sure I get enough protein throughout, uh, my life since she I started putting on weight is with, um, protein, uh, powder. And I know that some, again, sometimes I've heard, uh, like if you, if you want to do the most optimal thing, a lot of nutritionists will say, well, that's not the most optimal, but also when you're, Um, adjusting and accounting for the fact that individuals are busy and have a limited amount of time. And especially when you're talking about getting that maybe three o'clock snack or that 10 o'clock snack of protein. in, sometimes you just got to get it. However you can get it. What are your thoughts on one protein powder and two kind of going into that framework and selfishly, honestly, I'm thinking about this in my context of my own life. How many, uh, how many, servings of protein powder assuming one serving of protein powder has about 30 grams of protein in it how many servings of those should you or could you do a day without um terrible or without like a noticeable degradation in the quality of protein that you're consuming um account like ignoring the idea of fillers or other things like that which are present in some uh like melt maltodextrin things like ignoring maltodextrin and other things that can, uh, change different, um, change your GI tract, et cetera. Yeah.
0: I mean, th- there is no inherent issue with, I mean, I take protein powder and again, like we're big guys for us to get, I mean, I try and eat sort of 200 grams of protein a day. Really. That's a lot of chicken. Like I, I, I wouldn't, I'd be bored of it. Do you know what I mean? So I, I take protein shakes as well. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them. You're absolutely right. They're convenient for you don't have to cook them you can take them with you if you're in the office obviously you just pre pre scoop it in your shaker and you just take it with you and it's easy as that so i mean yeah they, they're they a really convenient and helpful way to to get your protein in i mean i would agree you probably don't want to be taking all of your protein from them not because that would be inherently bad i mean it comes from whey it's a byproduct of milk assuming you're not vegan i'll come to that in a minute, but. So I mean, it's it's quality protein. That, that's That's not the problem. It's just there's a lot of other things you get in food from, you know, your red meats, your white meats, your fish. My only question would be not that there is an issue with the protein that you're taking. It's that are you still getting the other nutrition that you would have got if you had eaten a steak or chicken or fish, your other protein, milk, cheese, whatever. so so it's not the case of that there is an issue with the protein that you're taking it's just if the rest of your diet is fine if you are getting everything that you need there is nothing stopping you taking a as much protein powder as you like effectively but if so if i do then just come on to sort of vegans and vegetarians that's very vegetarians less so obviously you can eat eggs and and milk and things but for vegans i mean it's a (laughs) An almost necessary way of getting, especially if you want to hit some of the levels of protein intake that we're talking about. If you were to get them from a lot of vegan sources, there's a lot of obviously like nuts and legumes and things, but there's a lot of calories per protein. Obviously, chicken breast is virtually all protein, so it's a very calorie efficient way of getting it. Pe- obviously, peanut butter is the the classic example that in fitness is a protein food, but if you were going to get all your protein from that, you would have to eat about twelve thousand calories a day. So. It's also the most calorie efficient way of doing it, especially for for people that are looking to either go vegan or just eat more more plant based in general.
2: do you think there's anything to to it when people say that vegans get injured more frequently um I remember this was a big topic with cam newton um n f l player huge guy, and yeah. he was a hundred percent vegan and he you know, got injured like multiple times during the season. And a lot of people attributed it to the fact that he was vegan. And I was just kind of sitting there wondering, like, how many pea protein shakes can you drink on a daily basis? Because that's kind of the only way you're going to get the amount of protein that you need. Um, But what are your thoughts on on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's no reason that you can't eat a vegan diet and be perfectly healthy. However, you have to accept that. It's requires a lot of effort and a lot of potential compensation elsewhere. So when it comes to injury, I mean I'm not a physio, so I don't, I don't want to overstep my my scope of practice, but it's common to be so for, to use that example, it's common to be uh, deficient in calcium because obviously we get we would get that from a lot of milk and things like that that as a vegan, you're, if you are deficient in that, that would increase your injury risk because it's going to impact your bones. It is possible. And I mean, so a lot of foods now that you can see they're fortified. So a lot of vegans might be uh, deficient in B12. And a lot of cereals and like almond milks and things you'll see are fortified with B12 to because obviously they're common foods that vegan, vegan people eat. So it is possible. And I would say for someone like Cam Newton with the, the resources behind him, you should probably be able to do it well because you could probably have a whole team of people He's going to have a nutritionist, a chef, uh, whatever else he could possibly want that you would think he'd be able to to compensate for that.
1: Going back to the protein as far as consumption in a day, tell us a little bit about your uh, diet as far as like if you were structuring out like, hey, I'm trying to, as you said, you're an intense guy and you like to optimize. It sounds like if you're optimizing your diet in a day, um, and let's just say, let's... Golf aside, right now, let's just talk about you in the office. What are you doing? And then compare that to what you're doing if you're going out and caddying.
0: Okay, so I tend to have to start the beginning. Start a breakfast. I've pretty much got three breakfasts that I cycle between, or at least three styles of breakfast. So an egg-based. So generally, I like an omelette because I like cheese. So I'll have an omelette, put some veg in it, whatever's in the fridge, whether it's spinach or mushrooms or onion or whatever. I'll do. I like yogurt and I find that that Greek yogurt is very high protein. That was, that was my first discovery when I was making the journey, like the fitness journey towards trying to eat more protein. And like I said earlier, generally the meal that you suffer is breakfast. Like I've never had a problem eating meat and fish. Like my other meals are generally pretty good, but breakfast, so the Greek yogurt was the first thing I found that was like, yeah, I can hammer that in the morning. That's fine. So I'll have a bowl of, bowl of greek yogurt with some either some muesli or some like bran flake style cereal in it for some fiber because you won't get a lot of that in the yogurt with blueberries raspberries things like that generally and then my other one will be i would call it porridge you guys will call it oatmeal so and then protein porridge generally so i'll eat I'll, i'll just buy the supermarket i'll buy a chocolate flavor and a golden syrup flavor and then I have chocolate, a golden syrup, protein powder, and just make that up with berries and a banana or whatever. So that would be the three breakfasts. And then I, I eat a lot of different foods. I think it just, just through the years, I've acquired different different recipes. I, I do meal prep, but not in the real hardcore fitness sense. It's just whatever I fancy cooking, I'll make three of. So then it's in the fridge or the freezer. So I'll take that to the office. So... I was in the office the other day so and I had a thing of risotto in the fridge that I'd made, which obviously stops you going into town and getting whatever you may have to get at the time. And I mean, like I said, and dinner's very much the same. Because of my calorie intake, my lunches and dinners look the same because they're both like sort of 800 calories. For a lot of people, lunch and dinner looks very different because they eat light in the day. For me, I just i most i try and make three meals of sort of seven to eight hundred calories and then i'll have a i'll have a snack so i'll take i i like um protein snacks so like protein cookies protein bars i'll take to the office because like i said because i get hungry a lot i would rather eat my protein than drink my protein it's no different to a shake basically just obviously you get a few more calories in it you're chewing something
1: and when you're on the course uh does that change as far as how you're managing your calorie consumption and the timeline of it?
0: Yeah. So the t- the timeline would definitely change. So, so when you're playing, I mean, I don't have, this is different to if I was playing on tour because I don't tend to have many 7am tea times where obviously you have to wake up very early. So, but generally you want to eat as early as possible on the day that you're playing to start your body fueling, to start digesting ultimately so get up in time is is some very good advice get up in time for a decent breakfast and so that you're also not stood on the first tee with a belly full of bacon and eggs or whatever you've eaten so that would change but for me personally that doesn't change often because I don't often play that early in the morning but it's just about making sure so for me obviously I have the numbers and I know how many calories I want to get in before I play so then the question to ask yourself is If you've got either a lunchtime tea time or one of those awkward in between like 11am tea times, do I need to eat twice? And generally for me, that's yes. For other people, it might not be. But the the, the trade off there is you might eat once, but you would need to eat all of the food that you need pre-round in one meal, which might be a lot as opposed to I would wake up at seven or half six whenever I normally wake up, have a smaller food bit of food and then eat a proper meal before like bring lunch forward and maybe eat it at 10 o'clock then before going out so yeah the timelines you want you want to move because you want to be fueled for when you tee off ultimately whereas yeah like you said when we're in the office it, it doesn't matter greatly
2: I know there's a, a lot of meal plans or, or or diet plans out there will tell you that right before you go to bed you need to supplement with protein because, you know, you're getting eight hours without any nutrients getting taken in. But there's also differing opinions on that, that you don't need to do this. And if you eat a lot of protein, eat enough protein during the day that you'll be good. Your muscle's not going to deteriorate just because you didn't eat protein before you go to bed. Um, what are your thoughts on, on this? And
0: yeah, I think I think you have to be realistic about it and say what are you actually gaining and is it worth it because theoretically it's true. So like like we were talking about earlier on with with spiking your protein as much as possible because you're not eating overnight that is obviously a long period of time where that protein signal hasn't happened but you have to ask yourself if you've if you've eaten the amount during the day. So so protein target is the main thing. Eating enough protein is step 1. How you distribute it is step 2 so realistically if you've eaten a good breakfast a good a good lunch a good dinner you've eaten a snack you have spread your protein out four times you might not have enough protein to spread it further you might be dropping further below the 20 gram threshold where you're spiking it more times but you're not spiking it as high you're not reaching that so they call it like the anabolic threshold where if you're not reaching that you're not achieving it anyway so Otherwise, you could say, well, why don't I split my 150 grams into 15, 10 gram doses and be permanently jacked? But that, that's not, you wouldn't reach, the signal wouldn't be strong enough to gain the benefit. So it, it, it is an optimization thing, basically. And so for someone like me, because I try and take in nearly 200 grams of protein, I can do that because I have more protein. the The, the threshold seems largely absolute, no matter how big you are. So the 20 to 40 grams is, is constant, whether you're, whether you weigh 110 or whether you weigh 210. So for me, I can get a lot of 30 gram doses into 200 grams of protein for, for someone that might be a a much smaller guy, one thirty, who only get takes in 120 grams of protein, you can't split it as much. So if you do, if you get them in during the day, you don't need to worry as much at night.
2: Kind of related to that. Um, I remember. The first physical trainer I ever had, he was kind of an old school guy and he used to always refer to the hour after you work out as like the, the golden hour or like the hour of power. Like you have to eat so much protein within that hour or else, you know, you've, you've lost your chance to rebuild your muscles with calories and protein. And kind of lately, I think it's actually Mike Carroll. Who put this out there? And he said that that's kind of a myth, um, and that you really have like three, four hours. Um, I might be wrong on this. It's been a while since I've I've read that exact literature that he put out there. But do you believe that that you know golden hour is a myth, or is it um, actually this strict?
0: Uh, yes, is it the anabolic window is is what what a lot of people refer to it as and and no it, it's not it comes back again to that distribution so pre-workout protein has been shown to be as efficient as post-workout protein what matters is where that spike is so if you took a, a shake just before working out just you, you're going to be spiking it so you don't need one after it because that that is independent of of the workout so it is a thing if you hadn't eaten or some people like waking up and training fasted i mean that's that's a different conversation but if you have done that then i would say yeah you want to get it protein in you sort of as quick as you can because you've you've worked your muscles hard they want to recover you want to signal to start recovering but if you're spacing your proteins protein doses correctly during the day you it doesn't exist because it almost is independent of when you work out. If if your spikes are constantly going up, it doesn't matter when you work out because it will be near one, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And I mean, I love the depth that you bring to these conversations. It's, uh, I mean, these are these are things that, you know, we, we can pick up tidbits here and tidbits there, and there's a lot of good stuff out there, but I like how you condense it all, especially can apply it to golf, which for us is, you know, what we're focused on and uh, we're also focused on tournaments, so those are key components as far as what we consume. I can tell you, there's a lot of mistakes that I've made as a junior as far as what I ate when I ate it, um, and especially when it came to golf. You know, making sure I had that uh, calorie cycle right and that I was consuming and releasing calories in a good time manner to maintain energy on the course. But beyond just consuming the calories, there's also something else I wanted to switch gears to a little bit on. The nutrition side, which is hydration, um, I saw a graphic that you put out on Instagram, and I'll give people the quick rundown. I'll let you dive in a little bit more about hydration. And one of the things that I think you touched on, which is important, and most people a still don't know now, but b I didn't know in college, was that if your pee is clear, that's not necessarily a good thing. I my pee, I drink a ton of water, and I'll tell you, uh, my pee was always clear, and it wasn't until I was in college and I saw this, uh, chart about what color your pea should be. And, uh, supposed to have, you know, like a little light shade of yellow or something like that. And that was the first time I realized, Hey, you know, these 12 gallons of water I'm drinking today, not actually, but close to that, you know, that might be a little too much. That might not be the best thing for my kidneys. Uh, and beyond that, even times where I did have adequate hydration, as far as consuming water, I still felt thirsty or, um, uh, you know, that feeling when you, where you're like, you have finished up and you've like drank as much water as possible. Your stomach's full. You can feel it like swelling and you're like still looking around, like, where can I find more water? I'm, I know I'm not thirsty per se, but I definitely am. There's something in me that wants to drink more. So I've got to figure this out. Um, so tell us a little bit more about hydration in general, electrolytes and how that plays into golf and golf prep. Yeah. So
0: hydration really important i think it's very often overlooked i think it's not it's not the most exciting subject i think i might have even put that in my post (laughs) that you're referring to that it's it's not the sexiest subject to talk about as opposed to like protein and carb cycling and things like that but dehydration of as little as two percent is shown to impair performance and that includes cognitive performance that includes decision making which is pretty important on the golf course so So yeah, definitely something to think about. I think when you refer to electrolytes, that's absolutely right. I think they can be overplayed in golf. And the reason being is that we get to eat. There's not a lot of sports where you get to eat in the middle of it. And you will take in electrolytes through your food. Electrolytes are literally salts, effectively. It's minerals, which they will be in your food. So if you're eating a lot they're not as important i mean there's some places if you're sweating a lot it's probably still a good idea thinking back to some of the you know the 110 degree days in vegas and stuff there's you sort of wanted them but so that would come back to where your hydration isn't just water you can and, and this is an extreme case it's not something that would apply to any golfer in the real world but i mean endurance athletes die of having too much water it's hyponatremia it's called where you dilute the salt content in your blood so you're taking in water but you're sweating out electrolytes and the water you're taking in is doing more harm than good because it's further diluting the mineral balance that you've got so that is why Hmm. drinking water past a point isn't hydrating you what you need is electrolytes to get that balance correct in in your bloodstream
2: that's actually funny that you bring that up because there was this guy that he was a coach at the old golf academy that i went to and he was always putting uh pink himalayan salt in his water and he was like you guys got to do this because people's hearts stop beating if if they if they don't um do this and we always thought he was crazy but i got to now I guess I have to eat my words on that one.
0: Yeah, no, and that is right. So they're charged particles. They help your body move electric charges through it, and that's how your heart beats. So he was actually probably more right than he realised. But but yeah, no, and and that is also a valid way of doing it. I mean, that's I I give that advice, especially for people like amateurs that are just going out on a Sunday morning. If you don't want to go and spend you know three quid on whatever sports drinks in overpriced in the pro shop, just just put some salt sea salt pink Himalayan salt is technically I think has the best spectrum of electrolytes but it it makes very very little difference just a bit of sea salt something like pinch it in your that that, I mean I do that because I'm tight I'm an accountant so I I make my own sports drinks as well so yeah that that is genuinely good advice for for anybody
1: smart man I like that um we have a lot of questions left for you and honestly we're gonna have to do a part or do a second episode sometime if that's okay because I know that there's a lot, A, that we haven't thought of already that we're going to want to ask. B, also things that we thought of already that uh, it it probably isn't in the best interest of time. It's probably best to just condense that into one episode. So I'll kind of lead us to our last question. Uh, you've listened. You know it. If you go back to yourself as a junior golfer, what is the one thing you would tell yourself? And then two, because you do the nutritionist side, you focus on that. If you could tell... A junior golfer just one thing about their nutrition and have them change it, what would it be?
0: I think to to do the golf one first, I think it would be to quote Lou Stagner on Twitter, it is manager expectations. I think I'm someone that's very intense and very hard on myself on a lot of things. And I was really never that good to uh and then when you start appreciating dispersion patterns obviously to go back to decade style thing you're you're firing a shotgun you're not firing a rifle like i, I think that the sooner you learn that and truly accept the role of luck ultimately the role of randomness i, th- I, th- I think that makes it a whole lot easier to swallow and nutrition to a nutrition side um i think pick and this is something that i try to be now as someone with a bit more information than i used to have is I wish I could remember where I heard the term, but I can't, I, I can't, so I can't quote it to whoever it was. And it's pick the arbiter of your information. So find people that you trust, that you know work the same way that you do. That So for me, and in my opinion, the way everybody should be, is evidence-based, is, is science-backed, is find, because I mean, even me, who now obviously does this as a job, I don't have time to research everything that I say. I still have places when I'm writing these posts, I still have people that I go to, to see what they think about it. Where So it's one of them is one of my lecturers that I still follow from the the courses that I did and things like that, that you can't read it all yourself. Pick a handful of people that you trust, whether it's social media accounts, whether it's, newsletters, whether it's more official places like examine.com. If anyone ever has a question about generally like a supplement, look for it on examine.com and they have all the studies broken down, like find, find good information because there's so much bad information. out.
1: That's smart. And that's something that we try to do too here. I mean, you kind of, there's an information funnel that goes on. And, uh, the truth is we can't all be at the top of the information funnel because the top of the informational tunnel or funnel is usually uh studies it's stuff like that that are very time consuming and then it goes down down and what the most popular people i think do well especially in this area are take that information in the information funnel and then make it understandable and relatable that's something i think that mike carroll does well it's something i think that a guy like andrew huberman does well and i think that's something that you do well as far as your instagram posts i look at them and every time i see them like oh man That's something I wish I would have known. That's something that I wish I would have uh, been able to tell myself and adjust to not just when I was a kid, but yesterday when I was making decisions about what I was going to drink or what I was going to eat. So I think that's great advice and we're glad that you're part of that for us as far as being part of that uh, trusted arbiter of information for people who want to learn more about you learn more about your products, get involved with you. Where can they find you?
0: Uh, so on Instagram, it's s- Ben. So we've been doing some posts that you've just referred to. I've been collaborating with Nick from Stronger Golf, who's another really good. So he's the golf fitness side of it. So I'm bringing the nutrition bit to it. So we've been doing some posts on Instagram and anyone's welcome to email me, ben at strokesgainnutrition.co.uk. I'm on Twitter, the same handle as Instagram, but I don't use Twitter quite as much. That's more of a... Uh, more for viewing and tutting at people's information than uh, than contributing but I probably should
1: contribute more on Twitter to be honest. Thanks for joining us today. Please do us a big favor and like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts so we can help others learn how to play better tournament golf. You can find us online at thetournamentcode.com, on Instagram at thetournamentcode, and on Twitter at tournamentcode. As always, Feel free to reach out to us at those places or email us at Daniel at the tournament and Cooper at the tournament code.com. We hope you join us as we continue to dive deeper in what it takes to play elite tournament golf.